I'm John Torek. And I'm Danny Sullivan. And you're listening to Speaking of Design, bringing you the stories of the engineers and architects who are transforming the world one project at a time. Today, we'll tell you about what started as a city sewer project and led to creating one of the most popular wedding destinations in Atlanta. When Chad Narberg and his fiancee Tracy moved to Atlanta so Tracy could manage a home furnishing store, they wanted to find a comfortable apartment with a park nearby. The young couple was looking for a neighborhood where they could spend more time outside with Bailey, their seven-year-old golden retriever. When I moved down here a couple years back, uh, we were looking for a place, and out of everywhere in Atlanta, um, it was a no-brainer for us to live in Old Fort Ward because the yeah, park is beautiful, so that in and of itself attracted a, a tremendous amount. The apartment complexes that we were looking at were built right on the edge of the park, so the thought of being able to live on a park was very appealing to us. Plus, the newest renovated portion of the Atlanta Beltline project was completed, and that was attached to it, as well as right across the street, a bunch of shops and restaurants, as well as residential and office. So there was there was a lot of energy there that was new and fresh that coupled with just the green space was a great place to kind of live. And the Beltline Chad refers to is the Atlanta Beltline. The Atlanta Beltline was the thesis for a Georgia Tech student at about 1999-2000. That's Kevin Burke. He's senior landscape architect and project manager for Atlanta Beltline Incorporated. That's a group overseeing the planning and execution of a 22-mile loop of trails and parks around Atlanta. As I understand the story, he got was having to prepare to write a thesis and didn't really know what he wanted to do. So in perfect student form, he punted and took a vacation to Europe where he traveled amongst a lot of the major cities and fell in love with streetcar, inner city rail. Back here in Atlanta, he lived in a neighborhood where he knew there was an abandoned rail corridor uh, in the neighborhood. He started looking at that and realized that you could put together approximately a 22-mile loop at the time of both active and inactive rail corridors that were built in the 19th century by four different railroads to bypass the city of Atlanta. In the 1980s, a section of the rail loop southwest of Atlanta was abandoned. The same thing happened to another section northeast of the city, and pretty soon, that Georgia Tech student, Ryan Ravel, began to picture the old freight rail loop with multi-use paths and modern streetcars. A way to get Atlantans out of their cars. The Beltline is funded through federal grants, local foundations, city funds, and a tax allocation district. Another aspect of this is the creation of upwards of 1,300 acres of new open space and the renovation of 700 acres or so of existing park space. Chad and Tracy's Fourth Ward neighborhood was a key step in that re-envisioned Atlanta Beltline. But soon after moving in, Chad learned that the Fourth Ward had not always been a destination. Before I moved down, I knew nothing about it, but over every Uber ride, each person kind of told me a little snippet of story. Uh, very consistent thing that people were telling me was that I had no idea what Old Fourth Ward looked like before the park came in. They were saying that it was, I guess there was a factory there, there was a, a chemical depot, so they had to do some remediation of the soils. 
there was a trash heap. It was just overgrown shrubs, and it was taken care of. There were some dilapidated houses. I grew up in Atlanta. Yeah, I knew of the fourth ward, so it's one of the original five wards within Atlanta. I actually looked for a house there when my wife and I were first looking for homes in Atlanta over 20 years ago. That's Robbie Bryant, a landscape architect and planner for HDR. I actually started off in architecture as a kid. I had an uncle that was an architect and always respected what he did. It seemed creative and fun. It seemed like he got was able to get to work and draw every day and always liked to draw. And um, so from the time I was very little, I always planned on being an architect and went to college for architecture school, but um, learned about landscape architecture um, my first year in college and didn't really before even know what it was about. Uh, I really liked the idea of designing outdoor spaces. To paint a picture, the historic Fourth Ward is one of the oldest parts of Atlanta. It goes way back to right after the Civil War. It's where Martin Luther King was born, and today his childhood home is part of a historic site, also nearby, the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library. But in the 1990s, the old Fourth Ward was in a state of disrepair. Property values were dropping. Abandoned railroad tracks and industrial buildings became dumping grounds. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution called it, quote, a barren expanse of cracked concrete, weeds, and towering trees surviving against a background of neglect. And the city was running into a lot of challenges, finding a new purpose for the largest brick building in the southeast. Shocks are shot, treads are thin, mufflers gone. Well, come on in, there's more for your life than Sears. Where else could you change your tires? In 1928, Sears Roebuck and Company opened its Southern Regional Distribution Center in the Old Fourth Ward. By the late 80s, Sears had moved and sold the facility to the city. The city originally planned to move most of their departments into the 2 million square foot building. They called it City Hall East. But they soon found that the property was up a creek. The Clear Creek Basin, I think, is 850 acres. Uh, the area directly around Storm Fourth Ward Park is about 350 acres. So that entire watershed is called the Clear Creek Basin. And there's a 350-acre watershed uh, that comes and also meets literally at that building. Kevin Burke from Atlanta Beltline again. And it was part of the issue with, like most older urban cores, the city of Atlanta was and is under a consent decree with the Department of Justice because when they built the city infrastructure 100-plus years ago, they mixed stormwater and sewer in the same pipe. In big storms, the untreated water literally blew right by the treatment plant and into the Chattahoochee River. So when a big storm hit Atlanta... It not only flooded the neighborhoods near the Clear Creek watershed, the old combined sewer system spilled excess sewage into the area around the old Sears building. The factories that were located in that area, along with the homes, um, you know, were, had long been abandoned, and there was basically just a, a gap between, you know, separating this neighborhood from, you know, what, where the belt line would eventually run. And so, I mean, you can imagine just having, it wasn't a, a maintained green space. It was just a vacant space where, um, you know, there wasn't positive activity happening in that area. That was the major obstacle to reviving the old Fourth Ward. 
Developers wanted to buy the old Sears building from the city, but they didn't want to invest in properties until they could be assured their new developments wouldn't be flooded. Before they would sign the contract, they needed to know that Clear Creek was operational and functioning the way it was designed. So, as Kevin explained, the city proposed a traditional solution to stop the flooding and separate the storm sewer from the sanitary sewer. The normal way that the our Department of Watershed Management, our water authority, would solve this problem is you've got a great big pipe, and right next to Clear Creek, the pipe is 9 feet high and 13 feet across. Um, people listening to this are in the business. That may be a small pipe, but for me, it's huge. In simply a two-year storm event, I'm told that pipe runs pretty close to capacity. And one way is dig a big trench, put in another big pipe, and then separate the feeder pipes. So one is storm and one is sewer. So the Department of Watershed had, and still does, construct tunnels, overflow tunnels, to alleviate the stress on the combined sewer during storm events. Robbie Bryant from HDR again. They were planning an overflow tunnel that would provide relief for that sewer, which is a very effective way to do that, but it's also a very expensive way to do it and a fairly invasive way, too. They have to dig up streets and, you know, sometimes affect historic properties when they're, you know, putting in this bypass tunnel to be able to handle the additional flow from the storms. The estimated cost of the traditional sewer extension ranged from $40 million to as high as $70 million. But a group of visionary Fourth Ward residents saw the potential to solve a problem below ground by transforming the neighborhood above ground at less than half the cost. The premise was simple enough. Build a two-acre detention pond to collect stormwater, and then after a heavy rain, the pond would fill and slowly release the rainwater into the sewer. The neighborhood group included Bill Eisenhower, a mechanical engineer and water quality activist, and a local architect, Markham Smith. You know, at one point, I, I, I turned to Bill, and this is, you know, two or three months in, I said, Bill, you know, I, I really, I, you know, I don't, I don't think we're going to get anywhere, but I think that if we're going to have a chance of making something like this work, it's got to be about something bigger than, than just uh, a daylighting some of the stormwater. You know, in my opinion, it needs to be about, a, you, know, a, you know, something that's substantial enough that, uh, has a real impact on the neighborhood. My, my thought was, you know, a large green space. What they do is, you know, they're, uh, they facilitate things like the, the Beltline and urban green spaces, green spaces all around the country. Now, Markham and Bill weren't hired by the city. They were just two regular guys, one an architect and one an engineer, who saw an opportunity. Along with a landscape architect named Cindy Cox and many other civically-minded friends, they worked nonstop to make the idea possible. They helped arrange real estate transfers to the Trust for Public Land, which was just starting to think about the Beltline concept. They worked on behalf of, you know, government or nonprofit groups that, you know, want to do some public interest project. The Fourth Ward at that time had the lowest per capita green space uh, in the city. You know, it was, you know, um, had the highest rate of both public housing in the city. They had the worst drug problems in the city. It lost two-thirds of its population from its heyday you know, in the 50s and 60s. It was you know, an area that was still in you know, pretty serious decline. Rather than pitting their sketch of a detention pond against the city's original plan for a sewer project, they tried to sell the benefits of a park surrounding that detention pond. What we're describing took years, 
But eventually they had the city council, the Department of Watershed Management, and the mayor's office listening. What we were proposing, you know, would um, allow them to eliminate a tunnel, you know, that was planned up at a minimum. It cut it in half and it probably cut it more. On top of that, you get a really nice green space. Um, and there, there were a lot of win-wins you know, to doing this. It clicked. The city decided they'd solve their flooding and sewage problems with a detention pond camouflaged within a brand new park. The city passed a $30 million stormwater bond with a portion dedicated to the park. With a plan in place, the city turned to Robbie Bryant's team from HDR to put it into action. So the park, just like the original vision was imagined, it, instead of storing stormwater during rain events or underground in a tunnel, it um, basically just holds it in a big basin. Basically, it holds it for, say, we have a, a five-inch storm, that water gets held in the park, and then over 24 to 48 hours, that water slowly goes back into the combined sewer after, you know, everything's dried up. The first phase of the project included a detention pond designed to hold 26 acre-feet of water as the centerpiece of a five-acre park. So the tunnel, you know, to be fair, would have provided more capacity than what we were able to provide on the five-acre site. However, the tunnel does not provide all the social benefits that the park is able to provide. So it's, I think what made it the destination is the fact that it was designed with a park in mind. I was working with the community. What do you want this park to be? What's your vision what, that would make this a place you would want to go? We discovered through the public participation process that people wanted to be able to get close to the water, that people wanted to be able to you know, have places to gather near the water. One of the initiatives for the design or one of the visions for the design was to create a place that not only captured and contained water but celebrated water and you think of just a standard detention pond and you have to bring water to the pond through pipes pipes and flared in sections and really unattractive engineering elements so one of the challenges we had was how can we bring water to the pond and make each of these an artistic element to answer those questions, the team turned to a different kind of designer. Well, uh, my name is Maria Artemis. I am an artist. I do public art projects which are integrated into the site that they inhabit and hopefully reveal some hidden life of the place or the community or the site. You don't have to talk with Maria for long to see that she was the perfect choice to add artistic character to a new public place. They really wanted the input of an artist. They felt like that the artist could inject and bring a, a view into the design process. I mean, I live a very short walk from that park, and so I have watched it <laughs> change. And I also grew up in Atlanta, so I remember going to that old Sears building. When I was, you know, a little girl, I would go with my father, particularly to the, he would go to the automotive center, which is now a Dancing Goats coffee <laughs> house. But, <laughs> you know, I just had these memories of that area. When you hear Maria and Robbie Bryant describe the design of the park, you really see where form meets function. You can't describe the stormwater features without mentioning the artistic elements. We have, I think, over 10 pipes that bring water to the pond, and all but four of them are hidden. So they actually discharge under the water level, so you don't even see those. So that's one way to handle it is you, you disguise them. 
The second way is you create an artistic element. You know, I wanted these features to kind of allow people to pause and watch how the water moves and flows and sort of enjoy the pleasure of moving water. You know, we all, there's just a basic human need to sort of be around flowing water. I don't know what it is, but we all just enjoy a waterfall. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's in our DNA somehow. We created a, a plaza that has a, a stream feature that uh, is an ephemeral stream, so meaning that it, it only carries water during the rain events. It's a sculptural place where, you know, kids love to run around and jump on the rocks and, you know, play around on the dry stream bed. But during a storm event, it carries water through that stream bed and then actually transitions to a 35-foot high step channel that follows stairs as they curve around into the lower basin. So as you walk down the stairs, you've got an open channel that um, lets water cascade beside you. We decided to choose specific sites that I could affect, you know, with my work. One was the fountain. There was going to be a fountain there to, to aerate the water. And the water wall, which does a similar thing, you know, it, it first filters out all the, the big junk that comes in from the storm water, and then it aerates it by circulating it so that it's up in, you know, in better condition before it is released into the river. She selected, you know, granite boulders to uh, position in front of that water wall to further hide the pipes coming in from the back, but also disguise the, the outlet control structure. Whenever you see a detention pond, it has to have an outlet control structure to let water out after the storm events. So we didn't want this concrete box sitting in the middle of the pond. That's where we created the, the water wall, the 40-foot long, 13-foot tall water curtain that drops water over what is our outlet control structures. And then on the west side, we have a sculptural plaza, again, that Maria has several art pieces in. We created a, a dry stream bed that has glass paving so that it appears to be water, you know, with the reflection, but uh, actually the water discharges from underneath the plaza wall, so kind of goes to a dry stream bed into the basin. So you don't actually see that head wall or flared-in section or pipe. It's all concealed under the plaza. Visually, I think that they add, you know, they just add a sense of place that's the only place in that whole park that has that kind of intimacy, that little, pl that little alcove, small plaza where you can go and sit on the stones and you can look out and view the whole, the rest of the park there, the, the water and the pond. Then on the north, we have a three-by-six box culvert that brings water from the north end. And it's kind of hard to hide <laughs> a box culvert, but again, Maria helped us work through several scenarios where she created a recirculating artistic element with granite slabs that are sliced like a loaf of bread is the way she described it. And water is circulated up through those slabs and cascades over this open box culvert. So you don't even know that that culvert is serving a stormwater function. It just looks like a recirculating part of this feature. I think that one of the things that is such a powerful and hopeful 
thing to see is when a city finally gets that they can make of a project that you know that has some this engineering function, but it doesn't have to just be the engineering function. So it can have these layers of other use and community involvement. You know, to make a beautiful park out of you know a flood pond, retention pond, is is an innovative idea. The five-acre park feels like its own place. It's 30 to 40 feet below the street level, and it has stone walls lining the perimeter. Trees and new condos are all across the immediate skyline. And elevated pathways are lined with native plants. The curved paths link the water features like the waterfall, fountains, and step channel. In addition to the granite artistic elements, there's also an amphitheater. But you may have noticed we referred to the park as Phase 1. That was just the beginning of the transformation of the old Fourth Ward. shocked at how how big it was so I thought oh this is you know ambitious start I think it's even bigger than the one I saw so congratulations to everyone and uh, you guys have an amazing park in a great area so uh, I'm honored to be part of it thank you a second phase expanded the park to 17 acres plus a separate world-class five-acre skate park the skate park was actually um, funded through a grant from the Tony Hawk Foundation so at the ribbon cutting Tony Hawk was there and skating around which is which is kind of cool to see him there. Because the Beltline worked with the skating community, it received $25,000 from Tony Hawk's foundation. This is the largest grant they awarded that year. Also, Kevin Burke from the Beltline told us the project made sense because skaters were already using the site. And that was developed because before we came along, that was an abandoned trucking company lot, and it was a dead end on a small neighborhood street. The local skate community had gone in because when they demolished the trucking company, they left the loading docks. And over the course of years, they built their own ramps, jumps, things like that. We needed to provide a place where they could come and skate and be together with friends. We had three or four meetings between our selected designer and the skate community. And the designer was, as you might imagine, He also skates, so he spoke their language. And I sat through my first meeting, and I got up afterwards. I said, you know, thank you all for coming. I understood none of what you just said for the last hour. (laughs) Um, I got a little bit better after building the skate park. Kevin already spoke the language for some of the other attractions that were part of Phase 2. We, and the Parks Department, I think, had no idea how well used that facility would be. On a summer weekend... A hot summer day, there's almost too many people and small kids running around that splash pad. That's a better problem to have than nobody's there. After moving to Atlanta, Chad Narberg said, you never know who you might see in the park. It has a series of water fountains. Uh, like uh, that, It's like a flush playground with like a padded mat, and then there's water elements that are built into the ground, and they shoot up when they turn on. So that during the summer, especially right now, kids are all over the place down there with their parents. They actually just filmed a recent movie, Mother's Day, with Jennifer Aniston and uh, Julia Roberts. 
The park includes structures to provide shade with solar panels on the top that power lights along the pathways. In the large green space, it's kept green through an irrigation system that uses recycled stormwater from the pond. In all that nice landscaping around the park, they're carefully chosen native plants that require the least water and upkeep from the city. And between those features, the solution to the flooding problem and all the community benefits, well, there was only one thing left to happen. Uh, parties, parties happen. Um. That's Jen and Eddie sustainability consultant at HDR. And why was Jen planning parties? Because Fourth Ward Park became one of just a handful of projects to receive a Gold Envision Award from the Institute of Sustainable Infrastructure. Envision is a rating system that rates civil infrastructure, um, but it's really developed to be more than just a rating system. So a lot of more people will have heard of LEED system for rating buildings. And what Envision looks to do is to be a framework for how people plan projects or programs to evaluate the benefits from the triple bottom line. So that's environmental, social, and economic. Envision began when people realized that there were a lot of different organizations within the industry coming up with different ways to measure sustainability. Actually, a group at Harvard called the Zofnis Program for Sustainable Infrastructure was working on something. And then a few of the industry organizations were working on some things. And so ultimately what happened was that the American Council for Engineering Companies, ACEC, uh, American Public Works Association, APWA, and the American Society of Civil Engineers, ASCE, formed the Institute for Sustainable Infrastructure. And they, as a group, worked with the Zofnis program to formulate the final version that, of Envision that came out in 2012. You see, when you complete a project, ISI reviews it using more than 50 criteria that fall into five main categories. The five categories are quality of life, leadership, resource allocation, natural world, and climate and risk. It incorporates recycled content. It looks at the life cycle of the project. It looks at long-term climate risks of the project. It looks at how the community is involved, and those kind of things are things that go really beyond what you might think of typical sustainability project, so that it really makes all the project's planning look way more holistic. Then based on the number of points, your project can achieve four levels of verification. There's bronze, silver, gold, and platinum. Although communities celebrate when projects receive Envision verification, the real benefit is that engineers are considering sustainability earlier in their designs. Instead of people looking at the project at the end of the project and saying, how, is this, how does this rate against the Envision system, a bunch of checkboxes, people are looking at that framework at the beginning of the project to see how they can plan and design the project so that it does meet the Envision requirements, but by meeting the Envision requirements, it does so much more. Ironically, historic Fourth Ward Park was designed before Envision was around. Jen's team applied for a retro verification, and they found that the original concept of Bill Eisenhower and Markham Smith checked enough boxes for an Envision Gold Award. Under quality of life, there are a lot of things they ask about with stakeholder involvement. And because the project developed due to community members asking for the project, it was really a great story to tell people in the community came out and they said, there's this flooding, there's this awful area across the street from us that doesn't 
you know, just has concrete and you want to put pipes in the ground and we want you to build a park. And it seemed like there was like a huge synergy that came about in Atlanta because the Beltline was starting at that same time. Also, because it's a stormwater project that didn't actually look like a stormwater project, it told a really good story about how you can do different things with stormwater besides putting pipes in. You can do things that improve your community versus just solving a problem. The cost of the actual park was way below what the cost of putting the actual pipes in the ground would be. So the synergy happened and it actually produced something that continues to this day, which is several years after the park was completed to bring new economic development to the community. So back to those parties. More than 40 team members gathered at the park to celebrate the envisioned verification. And the Department of Watershed Management captured Denise Nelson from ISI to explain the significance of the project. Uh, We're very pleased to recognize this park for what it is. It's a park, it's a meeting place, it's a recreation place. But it is a stormwater management facility that has helped promote economic development in this area. This is the first project in Atlanta, the first project in Georgia to be recognized by our award program. And Keisha Powell from the Atlanta Department of Watershed Management. That is a beautiful recreational park that people can enjoy every day, but it's also serving a purpose to handle stormwater drainage for approximately 800 acres within the Clear Creek Basin. Sustainability um, is, is really the key word here, and that's why this project was awarded the Envision Award from the Institute of Sustainable Infrastructure. When you have a cool new park, you attract people who want to live near the park. And when you have that, you have developers ready to build condos, open restaurants, and bring events to the neighborhood. And all that momentum feeds more development. I think from the get-go, everybody realized that there were a lot of parts that were interconnected. Kevin Burke from Atlanta Beltline again. Uh, Historic preservation, job creation, development, all of this was originally envisioned as flowing out of that if you create a transit corridor, if you create a great park, if you create a trail, it will attract people which then will attract developers. I think it's safe to say that what we didn't expect is how quickly this would happen. There's been somewhere well north of $400 million of private money invested around this park, which gives us an ROI north of eight, which by any standard anywhere in the country is a remarkable return on investment. And remember the old Sears building that had all those flooding problems? Today, it's called Pond City Market. The largest brick building in the southeast had plenty of space for new apartments, offices, restaurants, and shops. Exactly the kind of place to attract people like Chad Narberg when he and Tracy moved to town. The unbelievable fried chicken place, a great Italian restaurant as part of the Williams-Sonoma franchise. Cuban Panini Place. It's just unbelievable how many restaurants and shops opened up in Ponce Market. There's a series of restaurants along the Beltline that you can just jump right onto that are fantastic. A lot of independent, um, new up-and-coming restaurants with uh, really interesting chefs creating some pretty new cuisine. It's really great. The neighborhood hosts all kinds of events. Every Tuesday they have a farmer's market that opens up and The whole length of the the covered stalls are filled with vendors from all over Atlanta. They do yoga in the park, where the whole park, the whole green space, it's pretty large, is filled up with with people from all over the place doing yoga, concerts, 
there's actually festivals, multiple that happen throughout the year. There's a beer fest. There's a movie in the park night. There was a electronica concert that happened. <laughs> it's been a pretty interesting mix of use um, of the park. When you hear people like Markham Smith talk about what it was like before versus what it's like now, you get a sense of how big the change has been. The change from, you know, you know, over the last 10 years, is, I mean, they're two different places. You'd be hard-pressed to find another place in the country, you know, that's, that's seen this kind of change as quickly as you know, the area around the park. Now, even though Chad is new to the area, he also sees it. But I think in general, because of all the, because of the park and all the, the apartment development and new construction going on and the shops, it's drawn people from outside the perimeter who were commuting in the city to live in the city and live in the park and take part in all of that. Um, so you end up with a really kind of melting pot of different types of people from everywhere. And on any given day, you'll see people using the park in a lot of different ways. A ton of people use it for running in, but we used to walk our dog extensively up and down the staircases. There's a waterfall, some water elements, as well as a kid's park and um, just open fields. So it's perfect for tossing your uh, you know, ball around with your dog or taking a walk. When I go to visit, I walk my dog down there. You know, it's a really nice uh, walk. I often come upon, you know, like a family with children, and the children love it. You know, they're climbing on the rocks, and they're, you know, particularly in the plaza that I designed with all the rocks that, and the seats. And um, it's it's a real pleasure for me just to sort of be a fly on the wall and watch, <laughs> you know, people enjoying it. So, and then the amphitheater there is great. I mean, I have been to uh, an event where there was a concert there, and people are there, and they walk all the way around the pond and really enjoy it. The amphitheater has had even more use than Kevin Burke from the Beltline even expected. Robbie and his team designed a theater at one end of the basin. It was great. It fit naturally into the slope. We opened the park, and about a year later, we start getting calls from people who want to get married in the park. And from about February into the summer, I was getting upwards of two calls a week from brides. As I say, I find it very interesting. And I did this for three years before I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> and I never once talked to a groom. Residents like Chad and Tracy feel like they have an invitation to every wedding. One thing that happens all the time is, uh, like, you get to the end of, of May and tons of people show up dressed in tuxedos and prom dresses and for graduation, they take their graduation photos in the park in front of the waterfall or up, you know, in the trees. A lot of them take them right in the basin that HDR designed. And then we've probably seen about 20 weddings um, that have happened in the park. The success has given Atlanta a model for future flood control projects and given the residents a taste of what's to come along the Beltline. So the significance of the Fourth Ward related to the Beltline is that before Fourth Ward, the Beltline was just a planning study. A lot of planning was being done, and, you know, a lot of people were involved, but it didn't really have that momentum yet. 
So this was their first, you know, big project that was going to come out. And um, I think it did what the Beltline hoped it would do. It, you know, it was a project that everybody welcomed. You know, if you can imagine, you know, taking a property in, you know, close to the city, you know, that's underserved, you know, and providing connectivity through. And we've opened it up to where people can now it can actually get onto this abandoned rail line, which at the time was just a gravel path. So it had been opened up to the public. This entire neighborhood didn't really have access to it. You know, and that, that's one of the things I really love about working in the public realm is that there always are so many other people that are involved that have to be involved for a project of scale, of that kind of scale, to happen that all those people that are involved have the opportunity to participate in it and have a sense of ownership. And it sort of broadens the sense of community in a way that I think is really satisfying. Because the people who worked on the project also live in Atlanta and visit the park, the whole project means even more. Take Markham Smith, who started with that sketch that he brought to the city. Well, you know, at first I used to get teary-eyed when I'd go through there. But uh, now I just enjoy it. <laughs> you know, I just, you know, I mean, it's so delightful that I can, you know, ride my bike through the park on the way to my office. You know, it's hard not to feel good about what we've done and, and recognize that this was, you know, this was a long shot, you know, that something like this could actually happen uh, and that it did actually happen. It's, it's hard not to feel, you know, some pleasure in that. You know, the, the proof, you know, for me is uh, how much joy I, you know, I get out of it being in that space myself and seeing other people there. As a designer or creator, to see your work alive in a public space and people responding to it and using it and enjoying it, it's just, you know, it's a great satisfying experience and a great pleasure. You know, it's what makes me know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And for some, it was a career achievement. I put historic Fort Ward Park in my top three favorite projects of a 33-year career. It's the reception that the public has given us. And you build things and you're not really sure, you know, are they going to use it the way we intended? Well, we found out with the weddings, they often end up using it in ways you never envisioned. But it really has all worked and that is really satisfying to me. Well, that's great. I mean, and for my 40th birthday, my wife gave me a little, <laughs> I just had Maria commissioned as an artist that worked with us to do a stone uh, representation of the park. <laughs> so I have it hanging on my wall in my basement. So definitely something that I'm reminded of every day and not just there. I mean, but I mean, literally, gosh, this started in 2008 and I, I know there's not a week that goes by that I don't, you know, somebody sends me an article or somebody calls me and asks me a question about it or a student you know, Georgia Tech or University of Georgia or some other place says, hey, our guys were involved with this project. Yeah, definitely a very cool, cool project for us. For more information on historic Fourth Ward Park, visit hdrinc.com backslash speaking of design. You'll find links to pictures, articles, and more information about the park. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate us or leave feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.